Welcome to the Family Fright Night Horror Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the Family Fright Night Horror Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Will. Today I'm joined by author Tim Wagner, author of Writing in the Dark, Supernatural Tie-Ins, Halloween Tie-In, Alien Tie-In, and several other books. Tim, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing tonight? Pretty good. So I start every episode asking, what is your favorite horror movie and why? Oh, you know, I've been thinking about this like all week. <laughs> it's really hard to say. The very first one that uh, I remember watching was Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman when I was like four years old. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I, I guess I was aware that these two creatures like existed in movies, but it never occurred to me like at four or five that they could meet like they lived in the same world. And so that was like it just blew my mind. Uh, so that's my favorite kid one. Probably my favorite adult one. Um, probably in the Mouth of Madness. By John oh, that's Carter. a great movie. Yeah, I just love that movie, and it's I love the surreal nature of it. I love the way that the narrative breaks down at the end as reality is breaking down in the movie. Yeah, the world of the movie. So yeah, I think those are the two I'd probably pick for like childhood one and adult one. In the Mouth of Madness, that's supposed to be kind of a sequel to the thing, right? Like it's part well, of that trilogy. Know, I don't know. Uh, maybe thematically. I'm not sure you like, you know, in terms of like the actual content, but yeah, I mean, I think the thing in the Prince of Darkness, maybe, and then um, in the Mouth of Madness, thematically, they work real well together. Mm. So um, your new book, you have a book called Let Me Tell You a Story. What's that about? Yeah, that one is, uh, it's another writing book, but what I decided to do was take a feature that I had in my last two, where I took one of my stories and critiqued it based on the principles in the book. And then I decided to do a whole book like that. So it's stories collected from out throughout my career and stories that some of which have never been republished. Um, so they cover like God from when I was probably 24 and I'm 59 now. So covers all that time. And uh, uh, I tried to pick ones that were like pivotal in my development or where I learned something really important or looking back on, I could see a lesson that I learned much later. So I talk about that. I talk about the genesis of the stories. I talk about how I view them now. I try to talk about the, the basic principles I've used in the first two books too. Uh, and then I provide, uh, present some exercises based on any of the content that, that I talked about insights. I talked about in the stories at the end for writers as well. So it's a, my editor describes it as a, a weird combination of, you know, a how-to book, a memoir, you know, and a short story collection. So that's kind of a good way to to kind of wrap it up. And how did you get started as a writer? Oh, I, um, you know, I've been making up stories all my life. I was one of those kids that, you know, I would spend hours in my room with the action figures acting out like sagas. And uh, eventually, um, long about junior high or so, I wanted to be a comic book artist, but the, uh, so I started to draw comics, but I had to write them in order to have something to draw. And my friends were like, Oh, your art's terrible, but we love your stories. Uh, <laughs> and then, um, I was probably a junior in high school when I ran across an article, it was an interview with Stephen King, like very early in his career. He had just finished, I think the stand. Um, so it was in a, like a black and white Marvel's comic vampire magazine, but in it, I don't know why with the, I read it. And for the first time in my life, I realized that being a writer is something a person could choose to try to do. That just never occurred to me. And so I, you know, I'd read it in my bedroom and I walked down the hall, uh, you know, and I told my mom, she was in the living room and I said, you know, I think I'd like to be a writer and without missing a beat. She goes, I think you'd be a good one. So I got like, you know, really good 
really good uh, family support there right off the bat. But so I'd say that was the moment for sure, because it was when I started to shift over into to using words more than pictures to tell stories. That's always good to have supportive parents. I don't know if I would oh, have yeah. done it if I didn't. Yep. Yep. I think it's huge. Like, like, oh, it's like a hard career. I was going to say. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah. And you know, the, the, I've met so many because I've been teaching for 30 years or more. And I've met so many students who've been just a word here or there can crush them and keep them from trying. Um, you know, uh, the spouses that are threatened because it seems like it's it's something that takes time from them. It's really a weird psychological thing, I guess. I don't know. And other ones that are worried that like they're, they're, they're all going to go poor <laughs> if, the, if their friend or spouse or whatever suddenly, you know, like you're saying, you know, suddenly tries to make a living from this which is not easy to do. So yeah, I think it supports huge. And uh, when you're writing, how many drafts do you do? Cause I've heard all across the board. Some people only do one draft. Some people do like 20. What is your sweet yeah, spot? It, it's really, really hard to tell what a draft is for me. Cause you know, I spend time thinking about the stories as, as a, you know, like an, uh, the overview of the story. And then I'll, I'll make lists of things and notes, outlines, character notes, world notes. If I have to do some world building, and then I'll have a drafting outline, which I may or may not look at when I actually write, um, once I have the story in my head. And then I visualize scenes as I get up to them. Like throughout the day, I just try to visualize them. You know, this could happen, that could happen. Think of descriptions, think of dialogue, you know, kind of run through the dialogue in my head. And I may write some really short notes about what I want in the scene. And then I sit down and write it. And, you know, I tinker with it and try to make it better. But to anybody who would be looking at just the words I produce in a file, it would look like I just do one draft. You know, I go back over it and I try to fix it and everything. And of course I'll make any changes editors want, but yeah, I mean, for me, the, I, I did a workshop one year where I talked about what kind of, you know, where do you get your energy as a writer creating or from working with material that's already created? Cause that can give you an idea of what sort of, Revisor, you could you 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 are. So if you get your uh your energy from creating, planning earlier, doing all the things I did do, that's creating. It doesn't feel like work to me. But if I have to take something that I've already written and like cut it up and move stuff around, delete the huge chunks and add other chunks and re envision it, it's just to me it's like you know chewed meat. It's it's just a misery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but other people, they hate the composing part. But once they can get something down and they feel they have something to work with and get their hands on, that's where they get their energy. So, you know, you hear people all the time say you got to do, especially literary writers, like, oh, you got to do many, many drafts. And, you know, it's not true. You need to do as many as you need to do for you and for a particular project. But, yeah, I'd say for me in general, the way it looks by what most people think of as a draft, I just do one. And uh, you were recently at AuthorCon with me. Uh, there are a whole lot of mm-hmm. indie authors out there. Pretending we're all your students for a moment, what kind of advice would you give? Oh, it's, um, God, beyond the basics. I mean, there's all the basic stuff everybody knows. Um, the the more that you can draw on yourself, you know, especially for horror author comics, you know, mostly horror authors, but oh, some others too, but especially for horror, because horror is like, depends on a sense of the unknown. And if all you do is write, you know, kind of copies of other people's vampire stories or other people's zombie stories. They may be fun, but they're not going to be your best work. And your best work is what's going to draw readers and allow you to be the most competitive. So I think the more you can kind of get in touch with, you know, what disturbs you um, or ways that you can find to put your own imprint on things like vampires. Um, 
one of the things I do in a good workshops. And I did it. I talk about it in both my writing in the dark and the workbook for that is to, if you take a look at like horror icons, especially from the eighties, like you look at Freddy Krueger and Jason slash Michael, cause they're kind of the same image. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, who else am I thinking of Hannibal Lecter? Uh, they're really powerful, but they're simple myth images. I mean, Michael and Jason are the grim reaper. It's all they are, you know, just like a skull face. It doesn't move like a skull doesn't move. They dress monochromatically like in that robe the Grim Reaper has, and they've got their sharp implement that they come to harvest lives with. They don't talk because the Grim Reaper doesn't talk. Um, you know, um, um, Freddy is like the devil. You know, he's associated with fire. He's kind of red and has sort of demonic features, and he's got a pitchfork, right, on his hand. Torments people. Yeah, it's supposed to be in dreams and nightmares, but it's the same idea. You know, he's tormenting them in scenarios. Um, Hannibal Lecter's like Dracula. He's got a veneer of civilization you know, over the thing that devours. Um, and today I was thinking that maybe um, Leatherface could be kind of like Frankenstein because he's quiet like Frankenstein. He's big and hulking like Frankenstein's monster, but he's got the stitched face, even though it's just a mask he puts on. But he might kind of fit. I mean, he doesn't come back from the dead or anything, but he might fit that kind of image. So if you can figure out kind of how to take a cool trope, like at its core, you know, like the Grim Reaper is the thing that brings death to you and come up with your own thing that brings death, maybe something based on your, Oh, I just noticed your hat. See, it's perfect for the, Oh yeah. <laughs> Cause you got, yeah, you got, it's perfect for what we're saying. Um, you know, and you can create, you can bring all the power of an archetype into your work without any of the baggage. It seems fresh and it seems new. Um, you know, the grim reaper is like, I mean, they had Mandy and the grim reaper or whatever on cartoon network for a while. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's so people are so used to it. There's no power in it anymore. Um, so I think the more that you can kind of find your own your own way, and the more you can actually you know draw on bits and pieces of your life too, because it just feels more authentic. Um, like I, my wife and I went to uh, Cleveland not long ago. We went to an art museum, and there was this man that came in. He was in like a a candy like a peppermint candy striped suit with with a red tie bow tie. And I'm like what is that? That looks like a Bentley little character walking into this scene. (laughs) So, you know, I wrote that down and the fact that I observed that weird thing, I mean, I don't know what I would use him for exactly, but I've got all kinds of things. I've got art, I've got him, I've got somebody watching him, but nobody else seems to notice him. And he could just be a ghost, but he'd be more original ghost. Um, He, maybe he could be a vampire that feeds off the art or feeds off people appreciation of art. Um, I don't know. You know, but, you know, it becomes a different kind of an archetype. Then It's a different kind of vampire if I do that. So that's kind of, that's, I think that's some of the, the, the like, really bedrock advice I give to horror writers who are looking to just develop their craft more, put more of themselves in the work, stand out from the pack more. Because when you say author con, I'm thinking of a giant room full of all these authors. And, you know, you want to be able to appeal to the reader of horror, but at the same time, you don't want to be, like, the fifth or sixth or a hundredth in the row of people having their tables that have the similar kind of books out. Mm-hmm. And uh, you also write a lot of tie-in books. How did you get started yeah. in that? And how do you kind of flesh out the worlds you're given? Yeah. You know, when, like I said, I'm 59. So when I was a kid, you know, no VCRs, no streaming. If you know, a movie would come on TV and then if you ever want to see it again, it, you'd have to wait a year whenever it might show up. Um, or, you know, the same in the theater, you'd have to wait a year before it come on TV and then you'd only get to see it once. So a lot of us to re-experience 
you know, the way that we just like, you know, hit play again on streaming now is we'd read novelizations of movies or we'd read, or if your TV series like Star Trek, one you loved was done, you go read the tie-ins because there'd be more adventures. And I love those things because they showed stuff you couldn't see in the movie or the or TV shows. You know, you get the character's perspective, you get their thoughts. There might be a little bit more world building. So I've always enjoyed reading those. And so when I was working on, you know, just trying to get novels published and things, I also went, I went like on two tracks doing original novels. And then I just sought out um, tie-in stuff. And so my very first tie-in, it was just an open call that White Wolf put out for, uh, one of their games it was Dark Ages, Dark Ages Vampires. So it was the like their vampire rules and everything, but set in the Dark Ages. And they had an ambitious series of like doing, I think, 12 novels, one for each of the vampire clans. So they needed 12 writers. And I just like emailed them and I s- sold a few short stories and uh, one story to one of their anthologies for Vampire of the Middle Ages. And I got lucky. They gave me a contract. And once you do one, it's easier to approach uh, another editor. You know, because you've got some bona fides, you know, you've done this thing. They know you can do do it for them, too, probably. And it just kind of after a while, then, if you're lucky, people come to you because you've been doing it for a while. Uh, but there's still the the hustle of looking for work, too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've just I've kept kind of a par- parallel careers going on that way. Um, it's a lot of fun. I, I like the fact that it's a, uh, you never know what you might get. And it stretches you creatively, creatively in different ways. Um, preparing depends on what it is. You know, if it's usually it's series that I've seen, so that's easy. Uh, if it's a movie, they send you the script. They don't like send you the actual movie or anything, but you get the script. Um, and then I just go ahead and scour the internet and read fan wikis and stuff like that. Um, look for images so I can imagine what it's going to look like in the film. Cause some, you know, a lot of times what they put in the script isn't what it looks like. They find a different way to make like, like when I did, um, uh, the last Resident Evil movie, I did a tie-in for that. In the script, there's this group of people, and they all have skull tattoos on their faces. But when I looked at the, the you know pre-release pictures, there was no skull tattoos on anybody. <laughs> so I made sure to leave that part out of the script. So, so there's a lot of uh, kind of guesswork. There's a lot of you have to make up some stuff too. Scripts are only like, you know, 90 pages. They're not massively long, and so you have to try to think of okay, what would be some kind of cool scenes you know, that you could put in there. Um, so that's usually about it. Um, I write down all the dialogue first because all the dialogue has to show up. And then I go back through it and fill in the descriptions and other stuff around the dialogue. But that's the only, I do that for novelizations. It's the only way I've ever, only time I ever do that kind of process. And how much freedom are you given when you do a tie-in? You know, it really kind of depends. I mean, they, you know, you're not supposed to, do anything that would like kill off a main character, uh, like in Supernatural. I've done several of those. So, you know, you got to stay true to the characters. You have to make sure that you don't make any lasting changes in them, um, especially if the series is still going on. Um, other, and you have to, you know, you can't like do any kind of weird fanboy stuff where it's like, oh, this is what was really happening during this episode way back when, or this is how the what the angels really are. They aren't angels like we think they are. So you have to, you know, go by their, their their basic canon, too, and things like that. Otherwise, you know, they let you do what you want. For the, the very first Supernatural time I did, I thought, okay, I can't show the characters grow very much. You know, I set my novels in between two episodes, so I know exactly where they are. They're not growing a ton. So what I did was I had parallel adventures from when they were a kid, when they were kids. So I could show them, like, growing a little bit and what it was like to grow up as a hunter for each of my books the three that I did for Titan, 
I had flat, like parallel adventures, but one when they were little kids, then they were preteens and they were teenagers. They let me do that and make all that stuff up. They didn't, they didn't care about that. Other times, you know, they'll tell you very strictly. Um, for the, uh, the Resident Evil book I told you about, the movie before the one I did, because I did the final chapter, the movie before the one I did ends with this gigantic cliffhanger. It's all the heroes from the, the series on top of the White House with this gigantic horde. It's like a sea of monsters coming at them. And it's like time for the final battle. And the next movie starts with our hero just climbing out of a sewer. <laughs> there's no dead bodies, no nothing. And there's nobody around. And I was like, oh, no. So I said, I'm not even going to ask permission. I'm going to write a mini book of like about 60 pages at the beginning where I can write what happened in this battle. And they let me keep it. They didn't care. Um, the bad guy didn't get, wasn't as bad as he should have been. Like he was portrayed in other movies. So I juiced him up a little bit and they didn't care. Um, when I did the novelization of, uh, Halloween kills, they, they let me add stuff. that was fine. The only thing they didn't like was when I, uh, changed the dialogue a little because in the script, they might have somebody who would say the word no three times and an actor can make each of those sound different and have different emotion in them. You can't do that on the page. So I just have it say no, one no. And they, you know, they were like, no, no, put every line of dialogue exactly the way we had it. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so it kind of varies too. You don't really know. Uh, so if you just use your basic common sense and don't like break, you know, break the toys you've been handed, um, they usually let you add some stuff. Although I did do one for a, it was a triple X, the return of Xander cage. And they had me pull out all of his thoughts. Cause they said, he's an action man. He does not think. And I was like, Oh wow. Even action men think, but okay. <laughs> So you had to do it without any internal dialogue. Yes. They had me have to take all that out. Oh my God. Yeah. So That's I kind of wrote it more like he went on instinct, you know, so I, like, almost like he was an animal, not, not mentally, but you know, his body just would do stuff and that worked okay. But that's the only time that they had me pull out stuff oh, that wow. I added. Yeah. I really loved your Halloween kills tie in. Oh, I think thanks. that's way superior to the movie in almost every way, mostly because oh, you get to know the characters a lot more. Yeah, you know, and the thing I've done four of them so far, novelizations, and a lot of the stuff people say is missing from movies. They wish they saw more character development. It's, it was in every one of those scripts. It's the stuff that gets yanked out because they don't have time for it. You know, the act, you don't know how long the action sequences are going to take when they actually film them. And so, yeah, it's that's great because you have that material to build on. But then, yeah, they let me do other stuff with the characters too, some of their background stuff and whatever, and add in some extra scenes. I think my favorite thing was actually having Michael Myers thoughts on the page. Cause you get to like experience the killer, you know, as mm -hmm. a person a little bit and like a force mm -hmm. of nature. Yeah. That's how I tried to write him. I tried to think about like, what if I was writing a jaws book, you know, what, how do you write from the shark's point of view? And so I tried to make Michael kind of like that and, and kind of keep the mystique about whether he's just a person or is he a supernatural force or what is he? Um, they cut out some of that. There was some of that in the script, just some hints, people wondering, and they kind of pulled that out of the movie. Um, yeah, and there was a big the scene where he gets like beat up by the mob. There was a real, a real hint because they took his mask off and then he was completely helpless. But when he grabbed it again, it was like once again, he was super killer. And that was so cool because it really is like, is it psychological? You know, is it supernatural? So I got to keep that because it was in the script. But when I saw the movie and I saw they didn't do that, I'm like, you just ruined the best scene of the script for me. 
Yeah, I think the thing with Michael Myers' mask, that's been a question for a lot of fans, is is he a supernatural entity or is he just a man? Because Halloween Ends kind of went one solid direction with that and made him just human. No spoilers. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's the most interesting stuff. Yeah, I tried to get them to let me do that book, but the the screenwriters wanted to do it because they they wanted to write what happened in those four years or whatever between the second movie and the third movie. And that makes sense because they would know what all that stuff they wanted to do. Yeah. So before we close out, when is your book? Let me tell you a story due out. Where can everybody find it? October 5th. And you can find it, you know, at the raw dog screaming press site. If you, if you pre-order it, you can get it at a discount before October 5th there. Otherwise you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, just all over the place. Okay, great. I'll be looking for it. All right. Let me know what you think about it. I will. Tim, thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. I had a great time. Great. Have a nice night. I'll try. You too. Bye. Hey, Family Friday Night listeners. This is Chase Will here to remind you I have a new book out called Where Dreams Are Entombed, available now on Amazon and at chasewill.bigcartel.com.